Welcome to the seventh episode of the Climate History Podcast. Once again, I'm Dagmar de Groot, Professor of Environmental History at Georgetown University, Director of HistoricalClimatology.com, and Co-Director of the Climate History Network. Before I begin, I want to let you know about a really exciting project that I'm launching this year with my guest today. It's called Tipping Points, and it will be all about showing the local and immediate consequences of long-term global climate changes. You see, according to the Yale Program in Climate Change Communication, most Americans believe global warming is happening, but very few think it will harm them personally. With Tipping Points, we hope to change that. Students in our environmental history courses will write articles that use big climate data to explain how past, present, and future climate changes have affected, are affecting, or will affect communities around the world. Our Tipping Point site will also feature a list of online tools we use to make these connections. Anyone will be able to use those tools to figure out how climate change could matter to them. We'll also have events at Georgetown that will open dialogue between climate change scholars and communicators with the aim of getting climate change research to a broader public. We're running out of time to tackle the unfolding crisis of climate change, and this will be our attempt to address that. Okay, now it's on to our guest, Dr. Bathsheba Demeth, the co-director of the Tipping Points Project and our assistant director at historicalclimatology.com and the Climate History Network. Dr. Demeth is an assistant professor of environmental history at Brown University, where she specializes in the lands and seas of the Russian and North American Arctic. She has published on everything from the gold rush to reindeer and walrus hunting, and she has won no fewer than 12 fellowships and four awards despite finishing her PhD just last year. She's currently working on a major book based on her dissertation that will explore the environmental history of the Bering Strait from the 1840s to the 1980s. It's with W.W. Norton and Company, which is one of the most impressive publishers you can have for our listeners uh, who aren't academics in book fields. I interviewed Professor Demeth at the recent conference of the American Society for Environmental History, which was held in Chicago this year. The Climate History Network often has lunches or breakfasts at uh, the ASEH conferences. Now, environmental historians are a rowdy bunch, so please excuse the background conversation. Professor Demeth, thank you so much for joining us on our podcast. Thank you. So, first question. When you were 18, <laughs> and I might have gotten this from your website, when you were 18, you moved to a little village in the far north called Old Crow in the Yukon. Why did you go there, and how did your experiences shape what you wanted to do with your life? So I went to Old Crow um, as a gap year, which I took basically before gap years became a popular thing. I was a little ahead of that curve. Um, <laughs> And I wanted to um, sort of gain experiences because I was really interested in writing and photography. Mm. And I grew up in a little town in Iowa. I felt like I had sort of exhausted um, things I could write and photograph um, in that region. Um, and through a very ad hoc internship organization, 
that sort of helped people find gap years at the time made a connection with this family, um, an indigenous family in the Canadian Yukon, um, amongst other things. So my plan was I was going to go to the Yukon for four months, and then I was going to go to Costa Rica, and then I was going to go somewhere else. I had sort of a world tour planned. Um, so I bought a one-way ticket to this town, which is 80 miles north of the Arctic Circle and 150 miles from a road. And wow. I show up there. Um, and I ended up falling in love with it and stayed for more than two years. Um, what did you love about it? So my, my primary job was I lived with um, a First Nations family, and they had a dog team, but they both worked for the tribal government. And so they needed somebody to sort of manage the day-to-day lives of 40 sled dogs. Yeah. Um, and that was my job. Wow. Um, and in the, in the winter, that meant training them for races. So it's basically the dog version of training for a marathon. Um, <laughs> except dog distances are, you know, 70 to 200 miles wow. rather than, you know, 13 to 26 miles for people. And 40 dogs. And 40 dogs. You don't run them all at once, but... Um, you have to train them all. You have to train them all. And some of them are older and some of them are, you know, puppies and... Yeah. Um, so that was my, my major kind of winter, uh, occupation, but the, the town, because it's mostly first nations and it's really, um, remote, basically everything has to be flown in, which means that the economy is basically subsistence still, um, or has a really large subsistence component. So in the fall, I spent a lot of time fishing salmon, um, cause that's mostly what we fed the dogs, um, caribou hunting, moose hunting. Wow. I have a whole set of skills that I don't use a lot as a professor. <laughs> really? Well, surprises me. <laughs> but you go up there often, right? Yeah, I just came back, actually. Right. Um, I was there 72 hours ago or something like that. Wow. Um, I just flew back from a visit. But not at Old Crow? Or... In Old Crow. Old Crow, yes. okay. Yeah, I went all the way up uh, to see my host family again. And you see all the dogs again? Well, it... I was there 15 years ago, so yeah. the dogs are not there anymore. Rest in peace. Even yes. puppies. Oh. Even puppies, yeah. Oh, tragic. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of sad. <laughs> My must team be, isn't yeah. there. Yeah. Because yeah. you spent two years with those dogs, so I guess you get to know them very well. And you know them, like the relationship with working dogs um, in those conditions is really very close because they're, you know, you're sort of mutually dependent on each other. Yeah. You need the dogs to do what you need them to do, and then they also need you to respond to them and, you know, kind of work with them. So it's, it's a pretty intense kind of human, non-human relationship. So now you're an environmental historian of the Arctic. You're giving a paper on dogs here at the ASCH. So I got to wonder, did those experiences when you were 18 shape the rest of your life? I mean, basically, I've been studying or thinking about or living in the Arctic ever since. Um, it, it really was life-changing um, uh-huh. and not in the, I'm not just saying that, like yeah, yeah. most of my trajectory since then has been shaped by that. Um, and certainly my interest in environmental history um, comes from the experience of living in an environment where you just can't put it out of sight. Mm. I mean, there's a capacity, I think, when you're in temperate climates to just sort of take the natural world as background noise. Yeah. Um, and you can't do that in the Arctic because the background noise will kill you if you don't pay attention. Yeah. Um, and living in a place where, you know, the the wildlife and the climate and the topography and all that were just things that you had to know and pay attention to and respect, um, I think gave me a kind of a, a different um, perspective on how 
non-human things kind of intervene into human lives. Um, so when I discovered there was this thing called environmental history when I got to grad school, I was like, ah. This is what I'm going to do. That is what I'm going to do. Cool. That's, you know, your story is really, really good for how you got into environmental history. We just interviewed Jim Fleming. He got into the history of science because of the plane crash. I mean, these are all just great <laughs> stories. <laughs> My stories sound terrible by comparison. Um, anyway, so you visit, you know, as you pointed out, the Arctic regularly. Um, have you seen the environment around Old Crow and the rest of the Arctic uh, change between your visits in a dramatic way? Yeah, actually, um, so the Old Crow I've been going back and forth to now, I first went up there in 1999, mm -hmm. um, so it's coming up on 20 years of going back and forth to this wow. place. Um, and I went up a year and a half ago in the summer um, and went to a, a, a camp that's people have been using for at least 500 years. There's lots of archeological evidence. It's a place I knew really well. Um, we get out of the boat and kind of walk up the bank to this camp. Um, and because it's such a known site, you know, I, there was no chance that I was mistaking that it was somewhere else. And I was completely disoriented. It was really uncanny. I had, um, it just seemed wrong and I couldn't figure out why, you know, this place that I should be really familiar with, I used to run dog teams through it all the time. I, you know, I know parts of that country better than I know anywhere on the planet. Um, and I couldn't figure it out until my, my host father pointed out, he's like, the, the place that you used to run your dogs, which was right behind the camp, was a lake when you were here. Wow. Um, and the lake drained because the permafrost has softened up. Um, and because it's the, the summer growing season has gotten warmer and longer, or there's more warmth for more time, um, the willow growth has just exploded. So this place that used to be a clearing that I ran my dog team through is now, you know, over my head with wow. willow growth. Um, and there were places like that when I was back up uh, just this past week, um, where the, the tree growth has accelerated um, in a way that is really disorienting. Um, wow. And, and lakes and lakes disappear, like landforms wow. that I sort of take for granted yeah. um, and consider to be navigational markers um, have changed. And the caribou migration, um, the, the village depends on caribou um, for a lot of its food source and the migration patterns are shifting around some, somewhat because caribou migrations periodically just shift yeah. um, and, and some because um, snowfall patterns have changed because wow. as it gets warmer, there's actually more snow um, the snow season kind of extends. So it's, I mean, it's really very in your face. That's um, incredible. And, and how are they adapting to that? How's, how's the village adapting to these changes? I think there's, um, there's concern particularly about fish and caribou resources moving away from the village. Um, right. And partly because until, you know, a century ago, the people who live there at the Gwich'in were primarily nomadic or had, you know, a series of kind of seasonal camps and would adjust to things like caribou migration routes changing by changing their own migration routes. But that's much harder to do once you have a school and roads and, yeah. you know, the, kind of the infrastructure of a town. You can't just pick it up and move it because the caribou migration route has picked itself up and, and moved. Um, so people are having to go much further out to get meat, um, which is more expensive because mm -hmm. you need more gas for your snow machine and... Um, kind of the, the barriers to participating in that kind of activity are going up. Yeah. Um, and people just don't know, um, you know, people in Old Crow don't know, people in this kind of scientific community don't know what the kind of long-term prognosis for these caribou herds are. Right. Um, 
th this particular herd is actually in really good shape right now. Um, but other herds, like the Western Arctic herd, is in pretty bad decline. Yeah. Um, and that's true elsewhere in Canada. And it's true some places in Russia. Um, so it, you know, how these animals themselves are going to deal with the increased temperature is really hard to tell. Yeah. It's, uh, it's pretty unbelievable. It's not just a Chinese hoax. It's not just a Chinese <laughs> hoax. <laughs> that's safe to say. Um, so I want, I want to get into your research a little bit. Um, you're currently writing a history of the Bering Strait from the 1840s uh, right up to the 1980s. And, and you write on your website that the revolutions in the human use of that region, and I'm going to quote you, map onto the distribution of energy in Arctic space, unquote. So maybe you can tell us who harnessed Arctic energy uh, and how did the way they harnessed that energy change with time? Well, that's a good question. Um, it requires me to summarize this entire project. Um, so people have been harnessing energy in the Arctic for as long as people have been living there, which is tens of thousands of years, um, primarily through um, sources, animal sources of energy. So by hunting whales and walrus and seals and caribou and animals like that. Um, and what I'm interested in this project is kind of what happens to those organic forms of energy in the 20th century or the the late 19th and 20th century, when they come in contact with um, forms of economy that are focused on producing a surplus rather than on producing sort of subsistence plus trade, which had been the model more or less for the, the, the prior 35,000 years or so, um, depending on whose estimates of habitation in the Arctic you go off of. Um, and what I found is that um, the, the way that sort of biological productivity works in the Arctic is somewhat different than in temperate climates in that the oceans are incredibly biologically productive. Um, the, the Bering Sea and up into the Chukchi and the, the Beaufort Seas are actually some of the most biologically productive ecosystems on Earth. Um, because um, even though they're sort of covered in ice during the winter, in the summer they're capable of absorbing massive amounts of solar energy and converting it into plankton, which in, terms is, in turn is converted into you know, 150 ton bowhead whales and things yeah. like that. So um, you have this incredible sort of store of biological energy in the ocean. Um, and some of that kind of moves its way up the coastlines with these semi-aquatic animals like um, walrus and seals. Uh, salmon are another example because they breed in the oceans and then come up the rivers. Um, but by the time you get out into the open tundra, um, there's an enormous amount of biological diversity, but the kind of capacity for... Um, fixing carbon goes down um, because of the snow cover um, and because of the sort of way nutrient cycles work um, in the, the colder climates and just being covered in snow all the time means that photosynthesis is really tough. Right. Um, so there's this kind of gradient where there are lots of calories in the ocean and it kind of dissipates as you get further inland. Um, and this is a thing that I had observed, you know, had learned from studying Arctic ecology, and it's a thing that I observed yeah. from living up there. Huh. Um, and then when I started doing my archival research, um, I wasn't thinking about framing the project around energy particularly, mm -hmm. um, but I realized that the trajectory of European, sort of intensive European contact and colonization followed that pattern. Um, it starts in the oceans with whales um, after 1848 when whalers from New Bedford and Nantucket and places like that have made their way all the way around South America up through the Pacific um, and are basically whaling the last 
the, sort of the last catch that's in the ocean, which is in, in the Chukchi and the Beaufort and the Bering Seas. Um, and so they're there for energy really explicitly. And then when they whale to the point where they're not getting um, significant returns on the bowheads because they've killed you know, 27,000 of them and there are 3,000 left, um, they turn to the walrus. So they kind of move up the coastlines following this trajectory. Um, and then eventually on both sides of the Bering Strait, people turn to harvesting caribou and uh, reindeer and, and sort of attempt to farm the tundra as an energy producing, you know, calorie producing exercise. Um, and the, the one case study that I have that kind of reverses this is about um, mining, um, which is requires people import energy to the Arctic in order to get something valuable out of it. Um, and then I kind of come back to whaling in the 20th century because the, the Soviets pick up kind of an industrial whaling process. Yeah. And that's where the project ends. Kind of a depressing, <laughs> in some respects, kind yeah. of a depressing story. I mean, it's depressing, but I think the, the thing that I found that's really fascinating is that when you get kind of on the ground and look at the way these economic ideologies function at a mm. really granular level, yeah. they become very locally inflected. So um, the I way I to ask you about that, actually, so this is perfect. <laughs> the way that... Um, the way that capitalism works in the coastline ecology is very different than the way it works on the high seas, and it's mm. very different than it works on the tundra. Um, and some of these, I think, offer kind of more sense of the human capacity to kind of weigh in and make value judgments and not just sort of surrender um, what they're doing to the idea that the market is naturally going to make these decisions for us or communist utopia is going to naturally emerge out of you know setting up your economy in a certain way. Right. Um, so that, you know, whaling is, is this really terribly declensionist narrative, and it's pretty hard to tell the story <laughs> in the 19th century and in the 20th century. Like, people people know that they're exterminating these animals and they continue to do it. Yeah. Um, but then the walrus works very differently. Both the United States and the Soviet Union turn out to be very capable of kind of using other ways of valuing these animals to make political um, interventions into harvesting and create sustainable oh, walrus right. Um, so they both do that. They both do that. Okay. Um, and they both do that because in some ways they recognize that these animals don't follow market logic or kind of the, the communist production drive. Okay. Um, so people are capable of doing that. Yeah. Um, and I, they're most capable of doing that when they're most capable of understanding that these um, ideological systems are not actually universals that they can roll out everywhere and expect them to function perfectly. So local actors mediating these big systems and, and redirecting them yeah. in ways that fit the local environment. Mm -hmm. Also, could we say that the local environment is shaping how those systems are being deployed, I guess? I mean, it's kind of also about the, the so-called agency of, of environments, right? Yeah, and I think, I mean, that's, my sense is that it is coming from local actors being able to kind of step outside their ideological frame and say, mm. It turns out that walrus don't breed at a rate that allows us to harvest, you know, ten thousand a year. Yeah. Like that's just not going to be possible. Um, yeah. There, are, there are actual limits to how humans can interact with these animals because these animals interact with a whole set of resources and environmental constraints that mean there's only so many walrus. Um, what's curious to me is that people are able to do that in the case of walrus. They don't do it in the case of whales. Yeah. Um, you know, and because of all sorts of political. Um, kind of differences between harvesting things on the high seas, which are open 
unowned non-sovereign territory versus animals that come up onto coastlines so they can be claimed nationally. I think that's part of it. Um, that's cool. So, well, I guess maybe bowhead whales are also more lucrative than the walrus. I mean, I, I know the example of Svalbard quite well, where both bowheads and walruses are pretty much hunted to extirpation. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and it's perhaps even a more declensionist history possible than what yeah. happened uh, to bowheads in the Bering Strait. Um, and that was primarily capitalist-driven, I suppose, yeah. and, and from a very early point already, right? I mean, yeah. really already from the first decade of the 17th century, yeah. uh, this kind of stuff began. But yeah, I, I, even there, bowheads were more valuable than walruses, and they were yeah. They were butchered first. They have more energy. <laughs> huge quantities. Yeah. yeah. Each one has more energy. And they do this useful thing, right, where they float. Yes. <laughs> so, they don't sink. And it's pretty terrible. But, um, okay, yeah. So you're right that your project uses a, a blend of scholarship from many different disciplines, uh, along with sources drawn from 20 archives in the United States and in Russia. Um, and having talked to some people who have had experiences in Russian archives, I know that's not always straightforward or easy. Can you describe how you've researched your book, and especially, actually, how you've worked to reconstruct and honor uh, indigenous histories of the region? That's a great question. Um, so the, the project is equally in the US and in Russia. Um, so I spent about the same amount of time working in archives in the two places, which are, not surprisingly, very different. Um, <laughs> so I spent time in the National Archives and a lot of regional archives in Alaska, um, and then some on the West Coast where you know, pieces of Alaskan history have ended up um, because of where the National Archives moves documents. So some of them are in San Francisco and some are in Seattle. And um, So you kind of have to move all over to get from the really regional to kind of the extremely local to the national. Mm. Um, there's kind of three tiers. And then do the same thing in Russia. Yeah. Um, and my experience in trying to make sure that indigenous people's experience and voices were included was very different between the two countries, basically because of how ethnography has worked in the two places. Mm. So um, up until the early 19th century, or the early 20th century, they're basically the same kind of sources, which is explorers and kind of early ethnographers going up and taking a lot of oral histories, um, which are really useful documents. You sometimes have to filter them through all sorts of late 19th, early 20th century filters for the things people are looking for or not. But mm -hmm. generally speaking, there were people going up and describing and writing in lots of detail um, communities that had a very little contact with Europeans before that um, and trying to sort of get a sense of their worldview um, at that moment and how just sort of how they lived. Where were people living? What kinds of sleds did they have? What kinds of you know dog teams were they using? What kind of whale boats did they have? All that sort of stuff is actually pretty well documented. Um, and then in the U.S. side, um, it's been, there's been like a very... Um, sustained effort to record oral histories starting really in the 1960s okay. um, with, with some really um, very impressive anthropologists who learned Inupiat or learned Yupik and spent a lot of time, like their entire careers in these communities um, and have developed this really robust um, kind of set of, of oral histories and um, kind of cosmologies and, and those kinds of um, documents with people, you know, whose parents or grandparents were 
in that generation that kind of first dealt with the arrival of Europeans. Okay. Um, so those are, I mean, tremendous and amazing sources. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, spending time in the communities themselves is really important. So there, there's kind of a, a tripartite layering there too, just like it is with the local and the regional and the national for kind of the bureaucratic record. Um, okay. You can kind of do the same thing with the, the ethnographic record. Um, and basically, I use anything I can possibly get my hands on. Um, the, the Russian side is trickier because after the Soviets took over, Russian ethnography really changed. Um, and it moved away from kind of understanding indigenous peoples in this sort of salvage ethnography mode, the kind of Franz Boas, you know, indigenous peoples are probably doomed to vanish, so we'd better go up and record in exhaustive detail every possible thing we can. Yeah. Um, that kind of goes away, and instead it, it's a much more materialist, not surprisingly, um, economic-focused kind of ethnography. So if you want to know how many people killed how many walrus in each community, the Soviets did an incredibly good job of keeping those records. Um, so like the, the caloric record um, on the Chukotka side of the Bering Strait is fantastic and is basically non-existent in the U.S. Wow. So there's, you know years in which there are basically no records for these kind of things yeah. on the U.S. side, and they're perfect in Russia. Um, but there's far less kind of detailed ethnography about what people were experiencing in those decades. There's some. Um, I found some accounts, kind of personal autobiographies of people who were sort of original converts to communism in, in the museum up there, who were Yupik. Um, I, I talked to you know, people when I was doing research there to try to get a sense of, you know, what their families experienced. Um, and there are a couple of ethnographers who started uh, recording oral histories in the 1970s, um, which are really useful and kind of go back into that period. But um, it's, a, it's a different kind of record, and so you sort of have to steam the two things together and hopefully do justice to the people that, um, that are in them. Fascinating. Um, so this is always a tricky question, but what would you say are the, are the really big lessons? Um, I guess for environmental historians, environmental humanists in general, but also just for the world that, <laughs> that, that come from this project. So I think um, one of the things that I found really valuable about the comparative aspect of this project and laying capitalism next to communism is that it really denaturalizes the way that we talk about capitalist development. Um, I think there's a tendency, particularly after the fall of the Berlin Wall, to say this is this is the way that human beings organize their economies, mm -hmm. um, and to naturalize markets as something that are external to political uh, systems and that are kind of operate independently of human values really weighing in on them. So you can see that also with the attempts to rename the Anthropocene as the Capitalocene, yes. right? Yeah. <laughs> um, and I think by putting capitalism and communism next to each other, the fact that capitalism is every bit as much an ideological system that shapes how people expect the world to work mm. as communism was. And therefore it comes with different but equal kind of sets of blinders um, and kind of surrendering to this sense that the market will fix things or the market will work itself out, or the market is actually rational. Um, and when I put the, the kind of two ways of interacting and valuing um, these environments next to each other, they look remarkably alike. 
Um, and my sense is actually that, that communism was just an accelerated version of what capitalism is doing to itself. It was far less good at exporting the kind of negative externalities of massive industrial growth. Right. Um, and that caught up with it much more quickly. And capitalists have been good at kind of shunting that to the, the peripheries um, and ignoring the human and environmental costs associated with it. Um, but they're still there. And I think climate change is the sort of ultimate return of the repressed in some sense um, that you can't, you can't actually manhandle this system outside of how ecologies function and outside sort of social change. Um, you can pretend for a really long time. Um, and that's not really what I expected to discover when I went into this project. I didn't intend to be really writing about capitalism at all yeah. <laughs> um, in, in quite this way, but um, so much of the, the the kind of ways in which we're now dealing with environmental change and wrestling with whether or not there are limits um, and kind of the political backlash to even breathing the idea that we might need to curtail our energy use is something that I think um, the Soviet system actually dealt with. Um, not successfully, but... <laughs> <laughs> dealt with disastrously. Do you, do you think you would have... Um, gotten these same sort of lessons and narratives had you not focused on the Arctic? Does the Arctic make this stuff more clear, I guess is what I'm Yeah, I think it does because, um, because it removes kind of the two things upon which industrial economies depend, which is agriculture and access to fossil fuels. So the, the parts of Alaska and Chukotka that I study don't have fossil fuels that you can get to in the 20th century. Mm -hmm. There are now offshore deposits that are accessible, um, which is sort of the coda to the book. Um, but um, so you take away those things and what you're left with are these, these systems that require massive amounts of energy to function, attempting to function in a place that doesn't have it. And it really kind of strips down the functioning of sort of basic everyday processes. Um, and it makes them look far less functional because you have to import all these calories and you have to import all this energy if you want to make sort of modern life um, look modern in the Arctic um, in a way that's really invisible. We still do it all the time in temperate climates. We just don't have to see it. Yeah. To, there aren't airplanes landing filled with diesel fuel. You know, we don't, we don't sort of visualize what that um, kind of energy use means yeah. um, and in the Arctic it's right there um, and I think the the way that the sort of ecology maps um, kind of the caloric geography also makes it a lot easier to see how um, at a very local level these ideologies work differently um, I think it happens all over in the temperate world but it, it's harder to tease out because the the distinctions between ocean and shore are not so distinct. Yeah. So more people should start looking into Arctic environmental history. Or Antarctic. Or Antarctic, well. yeah. That'd be cool. Um, so, finally, always ask this, what's your next big project after this one? <laughs> That's an excellent question, and I wish I had an answer to it. Um, so I'm, I'm playing with a couple of ideas. One, and the, the paper that I gave here at ASEH was kind of a trial balloon, is to um, write a history through dogs and mm. looking at dogs as kind of intercessory animals between humans and extreme environments mm. um, and how that's changed over time and what it means that we've gone from using dogs um, in a very kind of 
labor-focused work sense in, in places like the Arctic or in mountain environments or even in, in war. You know, people use dogs in the Second World War for, to kind of navigate that extreme environment to having dogs being animals in urban spaces that you use for emotional support. Like they, they've really kind of changed their role with human beings dramatically because we've changed our relationship with environments so dramatically. Yeah. So now you need a dog to sort of help you deal with the stress that urban life puts on people. Um, whereas you used to use dogs because you needed them to help you hunt or help keep bears away from your camp. Yeah. Um, but that is such a massive and geologically unbounded or geographically unbounded sort of mess um, that I don't know if it's a, if that's what I'll tackle next. Um, I feel like the messy projects are often the best ones. Yeah, I mean, I find it very exciting. It's mostly kind of a strategic question. Um, and then the other project I've been thinking about is a comparative history of how um, wolves were understood in North America and in Eurasia, um, because wolf behavior is really different in the two places. Yeah. Um, wolves kill people in Russia, and they do so up until the 1950s. Um, and they basically don't in North America. It's extremely rare for people to be killed by wolves um, in North America or in um, And so why is that? What are, what are sort of the different relationships between people and the species? Um, sort of what's going on and how that turns into um, the, the way in which wolves are protected in the United States and Canada versus kind of how they're understood in, in Russia. Um, that's, you know, it, that, that reminds me um, of some recent work that tries to look at whale cultures and how whale cultures changed yeah. um, as a result of hunting. Uh, you know, talk about the agency of animals, right? I mean, that's just really fascinating stuff. Um, and I guess that would be a little bit, potentially a little bit more doable than the first project in the relatively short term. Yeah. Right. <laughs> it's a little more constrained yeah. in terms of the, the cases. Yeah. Fascinating stuff. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Demeth, uh, for joining us. And uh, we'll look forward to those projects. Thank, thank you. you.